Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, Emmy Lederman and I are joined by Cassidy Arena. Cassidy is based in Des Moines, Iowa, as a reporter for Iowa Public Radio. She's a part of the core in the Report for America program that places reporters, usually young ones, with media organizations that need them. Cassidy's beat is covering Iowa's growing Latino and Spanish-speaking community. Cassidy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Cassidy is the second reporter we've had from Report for America. Morgan Mullings of the Bay State Banner joined us for episode 22. Cassidy, give us a little more background on yourself, where you're from, and your journalism career path. So you start off with the easy question, which I greatly appreciate. Yeah, so I am originally from Berkeley, California, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. So the Midwest is not strange to me at all. Went to school again in the Midwest at the University of Missouri School of Journalism and with a major in convergence journalism, which is basically a fancy way of saying multimedia, as well as a, an emphasis in radio reporting and producing. A couple of other things to go with that. One is you're bilingual, right? I am. My family, or at least my mom's side of the family, comes from Cuba or came from Cuba. So at first, I actually had a quote-unquote Mediterranean accent. But since I did some studying in Spain, I got a little bit of the Spanish accent now. (laughs) So I was reading the job description for the job as it originally existed. This reporter focuses on three counties in particular where Latino residents comprise more than 22% of the population including West Liberty, which is Iowa's first majority minority community. You also supported election 2020 coverage. And during the legislative session in 2021, the beat will focus on legislative issues important to underserved populations. Why does a beat like this appeal to you? Well, it's pretty obvious that I have that personal connection there. My own family are the types of people that um, I would cover if they were here. So naturally, I was drawn to these people who uh, we speak the same language, we have the same, well, similar family backgrounds. So just knowing that they aren't regularly seen, and I never really saw a lot of that coverage growing up on my community. So I really thought that this would be a great opportunity to step into that gap that I saw in, I guess, what you would call mainstream media. So what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Oh, gosh, and that can kind of change every day. The one thing that's pretty regular is, uh, you know, we're all dealing with COVID-19 pandemic. So I am working from home most of the time. But a day-to-day basis, I talk to people, which sounds just like it is. Um, and I, it's not always for a story. Sometimes I just chat with people to remind them of my existence and remind them of my work. And other times I actually am talking to them for an official story. Iowa Public Radio serves 26 stations across the state. How does your role fit in with the larger team? Well, everybody has a passion, right? And and that's something that I really appreciated about IPR or Iowa Public Radio before I even came. It was a huge deal for them to even open up a position like this. They didn't necessarily need to. Nobody was forcing them to do this. But the very fact that they showed interest in this community that I'm already passionate about and already thinking needs more coverage, 
that's kind of where we fit in. I appreciate their interest in these communities that I already have an interest in. So it was a pretty seamless meshing of me and IPR. How did your uh, time at Missouri, and you're not the first Missouri person that we've had on, help you in preparation for the jobs, uh, for this job in particular? Oh yeah, I'm not surprised at all to hear you've got more Missouri people. That's why they call us the Mizzou Mafia. You can't throw a stone in journalism and not hit somebody from the Mizzou School of <laughs> Journalism. So I guess so in at Mizzou, you know, I, I promise I don't work for them, but they have something called the Missouri Method, which basically allows the journalism students to have a real quote unquote job in journalism while they're getting credits. So I worked at the NPR member station there called KBIA, where I wasn't really you know, it wasn't an official or conventional classroom. My class and the way I got credits was to do radio journalism. It was to interview and host shows and post-produce. And that was my actual class. It was actually working for the radio station. So you sent us a few stories and we could even draw back upon some of the things that you might've done at Missouri. One of them was on vaccine outreach in the Latino community, one on matching Latino children up with foster parents, and another on how Iowa's English only law affects voters. Let's take the last one as an example here. Walk us through the process. You talked about talking to people. You talked about doing this story. You talked about post-production. Explain both the story, the history, the current events aspects of it, and then the process by which you put everything together. Yeah, so I guess it's a little easier just for me to kind of start with the process and then let you know what the story is. The, the title, it explains it itself, right? It's, you know, how the Iowa's English-only law has affected basically the state and voting in general. The new That's Iris Toon. She makes videos translating information from English to both Burmese and Karen. When it's really complicated, she says it can take up to two hours before she can translate translate. When she isn't making videos for Embark Iowa, she translates people's voter registration forms at her church for free. She's pretty well known for it. So when I first got to Iowa, I had never been to Des Moines before. So I didn't know anybody. And it was in June of 2020. So smack dab in the middle of good old COVID-19. So I literally just called anybody from my apartment. I called people who had websites, Latino advocacy organizations, just a friend of a friend who lived in Iowa. So and as I was talking to these people and learning about their stories, one person, when I was kind of asking, so what are some things that is unique to Iowa that I should be paying attention to in my own reporting? And she brought up this English only law. And to be honest, at first I was thinking, oh, she, she must be mistaken. I don't really know what she's talking about because, of course, never been to Iowa. But then I kind of just went off of her call, which wasn't an official interview, and just kind of fact-checked everything she had said. And she was absolutely right. Iowa has... I guess it's it's in Iowa code that any official information coming from the state needs to be in Iowa's official language, which is English. And as we all know, not everybody speaks English uh, just because they're in the United States. Heck, not even if they're a citizen. There are some ways to take a citizen, a U.S. citizenship test, not in English, if you've been here for a really long time. Even if you do speak English and you did take the U.S. citizenship test in English, I can tell you right here, completely honestly, even for me, who, you know, 
fully fluent in English, sometimes a ballot can be really confusing. So it kind of all stemmed and ended up being a snowball effect of all of these little things that eventually came up with, okay, how is this English only law affecting voters? And there was a lot of community advocacy and outreach that, you know, these Spanish speakers and non-English speakers were all kind of taking care of each other and passing along their own little individual translations and interpretations of what was on the ballot. So although it was, you know, a, a government story or a law story, law and policy story, it was actually a story quite a lot about how the community ends up taking care of each other when the state isn't really stepping up into that role. So of the stories that you've done, for the most part, it sounds like they they focus on, I don't want to say bad news, but like hard news or or kind of things that 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 don't necessarily have a positive impact. What have you found in terms of good news stories that you've shared with people? Oh yeah, one of my favorites. So a little context here, in a lot of Latino cultures, we have what's called a quinceanera, which is, you know, basically a sweet 16, except for when you're 15, you know, quince is 15 in Spanish. So I had my quinceanera when I turned 15. And this one just came out of pure curiosity. I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know what would really stink if somebody turned 15 during this pandemic and they can't have their big, big party of a quinceanera. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I can find somebody who is having a quinceanera and talk to her about what she's doing. And, and so the story, which is called a quarantinceanera, <laughs> um, is, is, you know, a little playoff of quarantine, is about this 15-year-old who she had a really rough, she was dealt a really rough hand because she was turning 15 during the pandemic, which is a huge deal in our culture. But she looked at it just in the most positive of ways, still celebrated her quinceanera just in a really COVID-friendly environment. So highly recommend if anybody wants to listen to that. I I love, I love even just listening to this 15-year-old who is so wise and looking at the situation in the best possible way. And she ended up having a great day. It's interesting how different religions, ethnicities have different, I guess, times. You say sweet 16, you know, in Judaism, certainly bar mitzvahs, confirmations, all those things. And those have certainly been drastically uh, impacted uh, by COVID. And I appreciate explaining how you kind of came up with your story idea, because that was my next question. How do you come up with your story ideas? Most of them, I will say there are some where I'm just sitting on the couch watching TV and all of a sudden a light bulb goes off. But I got to be honest, that is few and far in between when they just kind of come to me and, and you know, pop up in my head. Usually it's just from me kind of hanging out, I guess, virtually at this point in time hanging out with people in the community. So I've gotten, made a lot of new, new friends and new acquaintances. And like I said before, a lot of what I do really isn't full on official interviews. A lot of the time, a lot of the time it's just listening and catching up with people. What are you doing? You know, is there anything cool that I should be paying attention to? And so it's them bringing the stories to me because I I do think it's harder if I have a story and try to go and a story in my head and try to go and find that in the community. It's easier to just have the community tell you what's important to them. And then, you know, you go and be that fly on the wall or you go and ask people the questions. 
One thing, I guess, like a technical thing that, that I wanted to ask about was just when you're not just doing the stories for radio, you're writing them for print for the website, right? Yep. So we, for radio, usually you've got the audio version. And for a daily story, you have to have two audio versions along with the web or print version. So lots of versions of these stories. And, and what's involved in the post-production on something like that? So, for instance, I covered an immigration reform march over this past weekend. And, of course, I had all of this audio, you know, an hour to two hours of just sounds from the march, along with these separate interviews of different people. And once I get home, I listen through everything I've got. Um, Usually while I'm in the field, I'll make little notes in my phone or something that says like, hey, at minute 16, this happened, that might be a good audio. And so I come home, listen to all of it. I am lazy and actually just use a transcription tool where I can just upload the audio and it'll tell me the words for me. And I start writing the script and I'll usually start with setting the scene of, of what people can imagine in their minds as they're listening to the audio and go into the people that are being featured in the story. One question along the lines of talking shop, and I brought this up to Emmy, and it applies to a little bit to what you were just talking about. It's something that I've worked on myself. When you first start doing radio or podcasting, the journalist has to find their voice. You learn how to talk about something like lighter news, more serious news, how to narrate a feature or a long form story. Uh, I do a lot of sports and my sports reporting, I'm very upbeat and gregarious and very outgoing. And I've learned for this podcast that I have to dial that back a little bit. So you've had a few years of experience now at radio reporting. What was the process like for you in finding your voice? Yeah, I guess this is kind of a little bit of a twofold. So, you know, simple answer is at the University of Missouri at KBIA, my news director and my editor, Janet Saidi, kind of just said, there is no radio voice. You just speak like you're talking to a friend, which is the way we write as well. When we write for radio, we write so that it's friendly to your ear and it's not a bunch of convoluted terms and things like that. Nothing too complicated when you're just listening because we all do it. You know, when you're listening to either NPR or even a podcast, you're usually doing something else, washing dishes, maybe not vacuuming because that's too loud, but you right, know, driving, <laughs> right. Driving, you're multitasking. So it has to be something really easy on the ear, which is why you just talk like you're talking to a friend. So that's the one part of it. The other part of it is, so I actually am hard of hearing, which is really, I guess, a little bit ironic working in audio. And so I've kind of learned that there's nothing I can really do to change my voice. I have a little bit of a list. I, you know, sometimes I might pronounce a word funny because I just, I'm not that great at hearing, but that just is part of me as a journalist and part of me as a person. So I feel like if I make myself vulnerable to others and show people, this is how I sound, this is what I do, and this is who I am, it'll be that much more appreciated. I would think that's inspiring too. Oh, I would hope so. Not to sidetrack too much, but when I first was going into journalism, honestly, I thought I could never do radio. I went into the University of Missouri thinking I wanted to do TV because there was absolutely no way in my mind that somebody who wears a hearing aid can do radio. But again, at KBIA, they taught me Radio is actually a really a visual medium. You look for the sounds when you're in the field. And then in post-production, you're looking at the sound waves. So even though your hearing might not be on point, 
somebody who maybe needs to wear hearing aids, that doesn't mean that radio is completely out of your grasp. Radio being a visual medium, I was actually just reading a book in which Ira Glass was quoted as saying exactly that and uh, describing it the same way regarding uh, This American Life. All right, we turn things over now to Emmy Lederman. She handles other questions, including a chunk of advice-related questions. What are some challenges when it comes to reporting on Latino communities and how do you make sure that you're totally or doing everything you can to cover your bases? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's something that is kind of in something that you have to keep in mind is I'm not going to all the time that it's not all the time at all. But sometimes when you're talking to Latino and Spanish speaking communities, citizenship and immigration status is always kind of in the back of my mind. So, you know, when people don't want to talk to me, it's it might not be personal. It might just be they don't want to bring attention to their status. So with all of that, trust is a big thing with the community that I report on. So a way that I've tried to kind of gain their trust is, you know, again, like I not to repeat myself, but showing up, being there, being at meetings while not being a reporter, but simply showing my own personal interest in their stories. But also, you know, doing stories that maybe maybe won't be somewhere else. And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe a TV station won't pick up this story about this Spanish speaking group, you know, hosting a vaccine clinic. And so, you know, getting the word out for them and not about them is a big deal. So telling them where they can find these Spanish speaking vaccines, as opposed to just, oh, look, this is happening. Rather, how can this benefit you? And I'm also wondering, do you think that Latino communities are adequately represented in the mainstream media at large? And if not, maybe how can that be improved? Yeah, so I think that, you know, out there's a lot of, you know, name this newsroom Latino or, you know, in Spanish, like en Espanol. And so it's like right then and there, you're kind of creating this barrier. Like, okay, we're going to, this media is for Latinos, for Spanish speakers, whereas this media was for other people. So right then you're kind of othering. So I, I do think that there in and of itself is just a little bit of an issue. You know, language, of course, is probably the biggest barrier. But I think that Media really should just be for everybody. There shouldn't be specific media for this group of people, specific media for this ethnic group, which is why I really like public radio and why I love IPR so much is public radio and Iowa public radio that goes along with that is open to everybody. It's free. You know, you don't have to be within a certain socioeconomic class to benefit from it, from that public source, from that public good, because that's exactly what it is. It's a public good. It's something that should be and is available to everybody, which is why, again, I really love that IPR has allowed me to translate some of my stories. And, you know, even though radio, we might have it just in English, just to fit the majority of our listeners. But we do have the Spanish translations on our websites. So, you know, it's kind of trying to meet people where they are instead of sending them somewhere else. So in one of our previous episodes, we talked to someone from the Native American Journalists Association 
about how a lot of coverage of indigenous populations is oftentimes about them and not for them and how this is an issue in journalism. And I'm wondering when you're talking to your sources and creating content that you hope would be beneficial for certain communities, how do you go about respecting their wishes and making sure that they're being represented authentically? Absolutely. And the the first thing that I would recommend um, to anybody who's wanting to try to reflect reporting for somebody, it's so simple to say something along the lines of, this person was speaking Spanish when I talked to them. And it's being really transparent and saying, instead of fully just coming out and translating all of their words into English, you let your listener and your reader know that who this person is, you're not changing them. You're just being transparent about them. And that's something that I kind of overlooked at first until one of my sources came to me and thanked me for that. So it's also by reporting for people, it's reflecting them in the way that they truly are, not the way that the English speaking or the majority of the population views them. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. All right. I have, so I have three more uh, to just close this out. I might have, I actually have another. So what are your career aspirations? Yeah, I know that some people might think it's lame, but I really want to stay in the Midwest. I think that there's so much news and so many things that happen in the Midwest that people don't know about simply because we don't have you know, we're a lot of cornfields, but yeah, I, I want to stay in the Midwest. I want to continue building up my career, hopefully at Iowa Public Radio. And eventually one day way down the road, I'd love to be a news director so that I can help and kind of lead the next generation of journalists. Nice. And I presume that uh, that you've you feel uh, very strongly about a program like Report for America. Yeah, other than, you know, just getting a job during the pandemic. <laughs> it, <laughs> I... I, not to repeat myself, but I just, I love the fact that Report for America truly is about covering the people who wouldn't normally be covered in just your average everyday reporter. They put an effort into the people who may have been overlooked. And then likewise, the host newsrooms, again, on their end are putting effort into covering underrepresented groups or topics. So it's a really humbling experience to be a part and to be a core member and also a really rewarding experience. All right, our last question we always ask at the end, is there a group that you want to salute? I know that in your case, there's a specific person that you want to bring up. There is. I would like to give my salute not only to the staff at KCUR, which is the Kansas City NPR member station, but they recently lost a colleague there and a friend of mine, Aviva Okuson Haberman, was the most talented and inspiring journalist of my generation. And unfortunately, she lost her life two weeks ago, but her memory will live on through everybody that she's impacted with the short amount of time that she had here. Let me say we're sorry for your loss. Cassidy Arena, thank you for uh, taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your future. Thank you. In 2017, the Ground Truth Project launched Report for America, This is a program that recruits and provides reporters to newsrooms to help them cover underreported stories. Report for America is a two-year program with a one-year check-in. Core members are typically emerging journalists who are both idealists and realists. The program looks for great reporting skills and a commitment to public service. The application process for 2021-2022 is closed, but there will be more openings in the future. 
Learn more at their website, reportforamerica.org. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So we open the reporter's notebook, and Emmy Lederman, my colleague on the podcast, joins us. We were both very impressed with Cassidy Arena. What intrigued you most about her? So I was really impressed after she told us that she was hard of hearing and never really thought in college that radio was something that she'd be able to get into but then talked a lot about how it's more of a, a lot more of a visual field and a visual art than people think. And I also really liked how she was quick to answer about the featurey, lighthearted stories that she enjoys working on. And even though she's more used to hard news, more used to writing about something that may make bigger headlines, she still understands that in her newsroom, it's crucial to strike a balance between writing about something that affects larger communities to honing in on a profile and writing something like about something like a quinceanera during quarantine, which is has a huge cultural impact. She talked about media being for everybody and how everyone benefits. I have found that from, it's funny, in my car, I listen to sports radio probably from the day that I learned to drive up until about October. Sports radio was always my home station. My home station has now moved to NPR. And she talked about how it benefits everybody in the community. It's not just radio for one group, it's radio for everybody. And I've certainly uh, experienced some benefits from listening to, to it. In terms of talking shop, were there any other things that you were particularly impressed by with her? Just her attention to detail and the fact that she is constantly thinking about how, her, how she can write stories for her sources and not about them. And I asked her this question and she had a really specific and strong answer about how when she does interviews in Spanish, she made it a point to mention that they were done in Spanish and, and translated to English. And one of her sources, she didn't really think much about that until one of her sources came back and mentioned how much that meant to them. And I just think that paying attention to what your sources need and making them feel as comfortable as possible is crucial in creating the type of content that suits them. It's been a theme on this podcast ever since Ashton Lattimore of Prism came on and talked about letting people be the experts of their lived experiences, whether it's just uh, the experience or it itself or how they wish to talk about it. That's certainly an important uh, thing for journalists to consider as they work with their sources, certainly. Emmy Lederman, we close the reporter's notebook. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.